My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. I'm glad you're with us this morning. I bet many of you remember uh, the RCA Dome in downtown Indianapolis. It was originally called the Hoosier Dome when it was built back in 1983, and it was the home to the Indianapolis Colts, uh, as well as hosting numerous other sporting events and conventions. Probably the most notable feature of the RCA Dome was its tarp-like roof that was held up by the air pressure inside of the building. How many of you ever visited the RCA Dome and maybe were inside that structure? Yeah, several of us. And I can remember the first time I visited the Dome when I was a young man, uh, probably middle school age, and my parents attended a convention that was being held there. And I can remember sitting way up in those stadium seats and looking up at that roof and wondering what was keeping it from falling down on top of me and really just being enamored by the size of the building itself. It was a fascinating structure. But in 2008, the legacy of the dome came to an end when a company uh, called Controlled Demolition Incorporated came in and imploded it, leaving nothing more than a pile of rubble. And several cameras were set up to capture that implosion. Uh, I want you to see the view inside of the stadium as the building fell. Check this out. That might stir some kind of emotion inside of you, but to me, that's just cool. And uh, in preparing for this message, I watched that multiple times, not because I needed to understand it better. I just thought it was neat. And uh, this was called an implosion, but what actually took place was a number of very small explosions throughout the, the uh, building, and those explosions were strategically placed on structural connections. And when those connections were destroyed, it was actually gravity that brought the building down. And I want you to think about that for a minute because I believe there's a connection between what happened to the dome and what can happen and what likely has happened in our lives or in the lives around us. See, those structural connections are what gave the dome the integrity to hold over 56,000 people. And there was never a concern that the, the structure would collapse under the weight of the crowd. But you take away the integrity of the structure, and as you saw, the building comes crashing down. And in our own lives, integrity is of equal importance. These, these things that we choose to be a part of or not be a part of, the language that we use, even our motives, when we ignore this area of integrity, destruction is certain to come. And it's not usually one huge explosion that brings a person down. Most of the time, there's a history of several smaller events and smaller choices made over time that have eroded integrity. And just like the dome, we've all seen it happen where friendships are destroyed and marriages collapse and lives are demolished. And worst of all, our relation with God is damaged. Well, this is week five of our series, Profile, and we've been talking about what it means to be a mature disciple of Jesus, and we've been studying the words of Jesus in John 15, 8, where he says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, 
showing yourself to be my disciples. And from that passage, we've developed what we're calling the profile of a mature disciple. We've shown you this over the past several weeks, but today we're going to look specifically at the fruit of integrity. And to get into this topic, I want you to think about something that most of us do every single day. As people who live in a modern society, we value cleanliness, don't we? So as a part of our daily routine, we exchange old clothes for new ones. And this practice of taking off the old and putting on the new is something that is highlighted throughout the New Testament. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says we are to put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And you see, Paul's talking about something far more important than changing our clothes. He's talking about integrity. And Peter agrees with him when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that as obedient children, we're not to conform anymore to the evil desires that we had when we lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so this morning, when you hear that word integrity, I want you to think of these words of Peter and of Paul. It's true righteousness. It's holiness. Be holy because I am holy. Because anything less than integrity is sin. And we've all been there. Peter talks about the evil desires that we had when we lived in ignorance. And Paul talks about that old self with its deceitful desires. So we see that sin is what marks us before we come to Christ. And it's the reality for every person on earth since Genesis chapter 3, when original sin came into the picture. But because of God's great love for us, after we surrender to Christ, sin is no longer what marks us. Rather, it's the integrity of Jesus and our pursuit toward it. But here's what I really want to address this morning, because I see that, that this has become normal for some followers of Christ to accept something less than integrity, something less than holiness. And we've all heard the invitation, come as you are. We just sung about it a few minutes ago. And certainly that is the invitation of Jesus to those who are far from him. Before you submitted to Christ as the Lord of your life, or maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and uh, you've not yet submitted to Christ. In that stage of the game, we would call that chair one. And the call of Jesus in chair one is come and see. Just come and see. And it seems that maybe the thing that people get hung up with uh, when they're in, in chair one is the thought that I've got to clean myself up before I come to Christ? How could he love someone like, like me after all of the things I've allowed in my life, all of the garbage that, that I've been a part of? Why would he love someone like me? I've got to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. And if you have had those thoughts, or maybe you're having those thoughts this morning, I want you to hear me clearly on this. That is a lie from the devil. He is the father of lies, and his mission is to steal and to kill and to destroy you. And he wants to lie to you about this call of Jesus. Jesus said, come and see. He did not say, get your act together. Clean yourself up, and then you can follow me. That is a lie. Jesus simply says, come. But here's an equally damaging lie of the enemy. And it's the thought that we can move into chair two, accept the call of Jesus to follow me, and never deal with the sin in our lives. We just continue on lying and gossiping and looking at porn just like we did before we came to Christ. And we hear the song, Come As You Are. 
And if I could speak just very frankly to those of you who are followers of Christ this morning, some of you have been coming as you are for far too long. And here's the truth that I want you to grasp this morning. It's that if you have said yes to Jesus, it is time to say no to sin. If you have said yes to Jesus, it's time to say no to sin. I want you to think back. Maybe you'll remember the account in John chapter 8 when the religious leaders brought a woman to Jesus and they said that she had been caught in the act of adultery. And we don't know if that was true or not. We know from the text that they were trying to trap Jesus. Uh, They likely set this woman up because they wanted to trap him. But at the same time, it, it may have been really easy to trap her. I mean, this may have been her profession. She may have been known for prostitution. We don't know. We don't know what all of the circumstances are, but we know that they brought her to Jesus and they said she's been caught in the act of adultery and the law tells us that we are supposed to stone her. So what do you say we do, Jesus? What do you think we ought to do? And Jesus bent down and, uh, and he, he knows what they're trying to do and he called their bluff and he says, you know what? Whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. And then he just sits there quietly. And the Bible tells us that from oldest to youngest and likely from wisest to dumbest, they all drop their stones and they all walk away. And so Jesus stands up and he says, woman, where are all of your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. So I want you to see right there that that Jesus accepts her. She's done nothing to change her behavior. She's done nothing to change the pattern of her living. She hasn't had any time to. And yet Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And yet he continues on. And he says to her, now go and sin no more. Live differently. Be holy. Pursue integrity. And why would you or I, followers of Jesus, think that he would say anything differently to us? He accepts us as we are, but then he commands us to go and sin no more. And I want you to know this morning that this is not about trying harder. Okay, this isn't just about trying harder. I do believe that we are to make effort toward holiness. We heard that when Paul preached uh, from 2 Peter chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, and we read that we are to make every effort uh, towards holiness, towards righteousness. And so there is that part that we play, but I am convinced that we cannot do this on our own, that if all we have is our own effort, we will fail. But here's the great part. We don't have to do it alone. We're not supposed to do it alone because Jesus has promised us his Holy Spirit to help us in this. In John chapter 16, we read about the night when Jesus is to be betrayed and he's having one final meal with all of his disciples and he's telling them all of the things that he wants them to remember when he leaves. And what I would say is is maybe one of the most important things that he tells them is that when he leaves, the advocate is going to come. He tells them that, that it's better for them that he leave because when he does, the Holy Spirit is going to come. That word advocate can be translated as friend or counselor or helper. The Holy Spirit is going to help them. And he says that the advocate will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I like the way that um, James McDonald uh, summarizes this. He says that the Spirit will show you what is wrong, what is right, and why it matters. Sin and righteousness and judgment. His work, the Holy Spirit's work, is to help us to take off that old person and to put on the new person in Christ. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking to you about that process and how it happens. If it's not just our own effort, 
then, then what's the Spirit's role and how do we partner with him in it? I want to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, I want you to keep one of those as your own. But Galatians chapter 5, and this might be a passage that's familiar to you if you've been around church or read the Bible much. Uh, we're going to get into a portion of this that's called the fruit of the Spirit, but that's going to come later. I want to start a little bit uh, farther back in verse 16. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And we're going to pause right there. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? That sounds like some really churchy words, doesn't it? Things that we say, but maybe we don't really understand what it means. Well, if the Spirit's role that Jesus told us in John 16 is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, then walking by the Spirit is a response to that conviction. He's going to show us what's right, what's wrong, and why it matters. And our response to his insight will either result in us walking by the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. So I want you to think about how this plays out practically in your own life. Something happens. There's a situation. There's a choice to be made. Maybe you're in a heated argument. And, uh, and, and those words, those pre-Jesus words, don't we, we all have some of those words that just seem to come to our tongue and they're right there and they're ready to come out and you're ready to destroy that person. But the spirit tells you, shut your mouth. Don't say that. Be slow to speak, slow to become angry. Bless and do not curse. Or maybe something pops up on your computer screen and you're tempted by it. We're all tempted by things, aren't we? They're calling to you. That, that image is calling to you and you're one click away from sin. And in that moment, the spirit is screaming, get out of there. This matters. And in that moment, he's convicting you and he's reminding you that, that there is a better way. There is sin, there is righteousness, there is judgment. This matters. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that when we are tempted, that he will always provide a way out for us. But you've got to choose that way. And the next move is yours. And so in that moment of the heated argument or the, or the image on the screen, if you follow the Spirit's voice, then you have just walked by the Spirit. So here's what we need to remember this morning. Walking by the Spirit involves hearing his voice and responding in obedience. It involves hearing his voice and responding in obedience. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian minister who lived in the 1800s, and I think he really understood what it meant to listen to the Spirit and to respond in obedience. Listen to what he said. He said, if you wish him to remain, you must yield to his softest leadings. Watch to learn what he would have you do and yield yourself up to his guidance. You see, it's not always an audible voice that you're going to hear. In fact, it's not usually an audible voice that you're going to hear. Oftentimes, it has to do with reading the scripture and, and letting him speak to you through his word or remembering a passage that maybe you've put to memory and letting him speak to you through that. Other times, it's just a stirring in your heart and you just know, I can't go there. I'm not supposed to do that. His conviction comes in many different ways, but in my experience, Yielding to it always makes me more aware of it the next time. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5, he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. And this is why I say that if you have said yes to Jesus, it's time to say no to sin because the two are incompatible. In fact, Paul goes on to say they are in conflict with each other. And that word that's translated as conflict here, it's the Greek word antikamai. It looks like this. And you can see in there the word anti. We use that all of the time. We fully understand what that means. It's to oppose or to set against or to be an adversary. There is no common ground with antikamai. There is no shared space. And so I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus was in very nature God, but he willingly left heaven his rightful place of glory with the Father to step onto earth and to live as a man. And he died a terrible death on a cross to pay for sins that he had never even committed. And he did that because he loved us so much and he did not want us to be eternally separated from him. And when we surrender our lives to him, we're told that his Holy Spirit moves into our hearts. So let me ask you, How do you think Christ feels about sharing that space in your heart with the very things that he came to destroy? Do you think he's going to be okay with that? The spirit is antikamai to the flesh. Christ is antikamai to sin. They cannot coexist. He will not share space. Now, Paul's about to get real with us in verse 19, and he's going to paint a very clear picture for us of what a life without integrity looks like. I mentioned before that that many of us are familiar with the fruits of the Spirit. I call what, what Paul's about to list here the fruits of the flesh. And here's what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And so let's not kid ourselves. You know, there's nothing here that should surprise us. He goes on to list sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. There's a word we don't use a lot, but it simply means excessive indulgence, in sensual pleasures. He goes on, idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And we know from that phrase and the like that this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, it's not, it's not meant to be, but Paul is essentially saying, you get the picture. I, I don't need to go on here. But I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul has just presented here is a picture of that old self. And all of us, either in the past or possibly in the present, we've lived that way. And you say, well, I I never practiced witchcraft. You know, I was never a part of sexual immorality or whatever, because your sin list maybe looks different than this. But who here has never had a selfish ambition? I mean, who here has never felt the pull of jealousy or envy or had some form of impurity in their heart? That's why Paul is so quick to note in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the reality, that, that each one of us has a sin list. You've got one and I've got one, and it's what separated us from God. It's what marked us before Christ. But once we submit to Christ, everything is different. We're not marked by sin anymore. Now we're marked by grace and by mercy, and we're to live differently. Again, it's off with that old self and on with the new. Our new reality is holiness and integrity, and it comes when we walk by the Spirit. And when we do that, spiritual fruit will develop in our lives. Paul goes on to to list what that fruit is as well, and I'm going to read this list. And as I do that, 
for, for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to do a little bit of a self-evaluation as we read through this list. And the question isn't, am I perfect in these areas? The question is, are these fruits increasing in measure in me? When I think about my life a year ago, has this fruit increased in me over the last year? Let's think about that as we read through, starting in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so ask yourself the question, am I more loving now than I was a year ago? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Am I a more joyful person? He lists peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. What does the new self look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. Again, that's what the Spirit is working toward in each of us to produce the character and the priorities of Christ. And again, this isn't an exhaustive list either. We read a similar list in 2 Peter chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. Remember that Peter said, if these qualities are ours and increasing in measure, that they will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Christ. So it's not enough just to know the right answer. We need to see these things growing inside of us, and we've got to make effort toward holiness. If we are to become mature disciples of Jesus then integrity has got to be our aim. And so I want to share with you three areas that, that I think are critical for each of us in our walk with Christ to pursue integrity every day. And a few verses to go along with those that you can put to memory and pray over to help you in each area. The first area would simply be our thoughts. Integrity in my thoughts and if you don't know where to start, if you want to start pursuing integrity, but you just don't know where or how, start right here. Because we're going to consider a couple of other areas in a minute. But again, it, it all begins in our minds and in our thoughts. And if we could conquer this area of our thought life, uh, I think more than half of the battle would be won. When I think about integrity in my thoughts, I think of 2 Corinthians 10.5. And it says this, it says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Listen, if you are struggling with integrity in your thoughts, I want you to put this verse to memory and ask the Lord to help you take those thoughts captive. If, if you think about the fruits of the flesh that Paul listed for us in Galatians chapter 5, I think the biggest trouble with our thought life would probably fall into the categories of selfish ambition and sexual immorality. Instead of thinking of others and caring about others above ourselves, we think of ourselves first, don't we? Doesn't that seem to be the pull? How can I get ahead? How can I better myself, rise to the top? Or instead of fleeing from sexual immorality, we actually daydream about it. And we feed the very flesh that we're called to put off by looking at images or looking at people and lusting in our hearts. And it's so easy to do without anyone even know, knowing what's going on. But it's the farthest thing from integrity in our thoughts. So if that's true of you, if you are struggling with integrity in your thought life, Ask the Spirit of God to help you in this area. Start listening for his voice and looking for that promised way out of temptation and be obedient because this is a battle and you've got to fight this stuff like your life depends on it. You can't be passive or you will lose every time. I can tell you that when I first started taking this passage seriously and taking my thoughts captive, I failed a lot. But with time and by God's grace, this becomes very natural. 
And when an impure thought comes into my mind, I'll sometimes even say out loud, no way, nope, I'm not going there. Jesus, that thought was not from you, it's not of you, and I'm taking it captive. And he wants you to have victory in this area. Because if integrity is our aim, it has to start in our thoughts. But the second area is our words. Integrity in my words. And we really need our hearts to line up with the heart of David in this area. I think about David's words from Psalm 19, where he says, May the words of my heart and the meditation, or the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Because that's a heart of real integrity when it comes to our words. That I don't want to say anything, I don't want anything coming out of my mouth that would be displeasing to the Lord. Or how about this one in Psalm 141.3? He says, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Man, I, I pray this one all the time. My mouth gets me in so much trouble. Can some of you... Some of you here resonate with that. I'm guessing that's why you're laughing. If you are like me and your mouth tends to get you into trouble, just pray with me, Psalm 141.3, and ask the Lord to, to put that guard over your mouth, maybe to put a cinder block wall over your mouth before those words can get out. And, and think about some of the other ways that words can cause a break in our integrity. Maybe you struggle with things like lying or profanity or obscenity or coarse joking. If this is an area where you lack integrity, there are several other passages listed on your notes page, and uh, I want you to take some time this week, and I want you to read through those and maybe even put some of them to memory, and I want you to see that God cares about our words. He wants us to have integrity in our words. The third area would simply be this. It's integrity in my actions. And having integrity in our actions means that everything we do we do it for the glory of God. You've probably heard it said uh, that if it can't be done to God's glory, it doesn't need to be done at all. And I think of passages like Colossians 3.17 that says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So again, it's just paying attention to what the Spirit is calling you to in your day and then responding in obedience. It's the way we go about our work. It's the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way that we approach parenting, the way that we love our spouse, the way we love our kids and doing it all for the glory of God. And if you find yourself pursuing your own glory in these areas, ask His Spirit to help you in this and to refocus your life on integrity, integrity of thoughts, integrity of words, and integrity of actions. Seeking holiness in these three areas and producing the fruit of integrity. Well, as we bring this to a close this morning, I want to wrap this up with one last thought. Because you and I both know that there will be times when we'll know the right thing to do and we'll go the other way. Sin is still a struggle to some degree uh, for all of us. Because on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power and the penalty of sin. But the presence of sin will be our reality until we go home to heaven or until Christ comes back for us. And so what we've been saying is that we are to aim for holiness on this earth, but we need to realize that we will never be sinless. We should sin less, but we will never be sinless, not on this earth. So what do we do when we sin? As followers of Jesus, when the Spirit convicts us of sin in our lives and we recognize, I've not been walking by the Spirit, I've not been going the right way, what is our next move? In our pursuit of integrity, there's a skill that every disciple has to learn. If we are to become mature disciples, we must embrace confession. 
It's the skill, it's the discipline of confession. And I want to finish this morning in the book of 1 John. And again, I want you to turn there with me because I want you to highlight this passage, dog ear the page, whatever you need to do to be drawn back to this. Because for followers of Christ, this is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. I want to read verses 5 through 10 where John begins by saying this. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And so John begins by establishing the integrity of God, doesn't he? There's no darkness in him, no sin, no evil. He is pure, he is light, he is integrity. And so if you wanna know what holiness looks like, you look at God and specifically God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Verse six, he says this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So this, again, is what we've already said, that if you've said yes to Jesus, we have to say no to sin. When we say yes to Jesus and then continue sinning, we're living a lie. We're not living in the truth. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now watch this, verse eight. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, wait a minute, because verse six said, if we sin, we're not living in the truth. But verse eight says, if we say we don't sin, we're not living in the truth. So which one is it? It's a little bit confusing on the first read. But again, being a Christian doesn't mean that you'll be sinless. But the question is, are you running towards sin or are you running away from it? Is there any area in your life where you've chosen to ignore sin or allowed it just to continue on? That's what verse six is talking about. It's the sin that we ignore or maybe even pursue. But verse eight is simply recognizing that even as a follower of Jesus, there will be moments for all of us when we will sin. But understand that the true mark of a disciple isn't that they are sinless. The true mark of a disciple is what they do after they sin. Look at verse nine. John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John says, if we confess our sins, to who? Well, certainly it has to start with God. All sin is first and foremost against God. You might remember back in Psalm 51 where David writes about, uh, it's his prayer of confession and is begging for forgiveness of the Lord uh, about committing adultery and then committing murder to cover it up and then lying to a nation for a year. And he comes before the Lord in Psalm 51 and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. What? You committed a dirt, adultery? You, you murdered somebody? You lied to an entire nation and against you and you alone have I sinned? But what David understood was that in light of what his sin did in relation to God, everything else was secondary. He wasn't ignoring the fact that his sin had other consequences. But first and foremost, sin is against God. And David understood that. So confessing to God is where it has to start. But then it's time to consider who else? Who else has my sin impacted? Who else have I sinned against and did you notice back in verse 7 of 1 John, he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so he's talking about our brothers and sisters. So, so we can know the opposite is also true, that when we sin, it breaks our fellowship with others. And so who is it that maybe you need to confess to? Maybe it's a friend uh, or a boss or a coworker. Maybe it's your spouse. 
or your kids or your parents. But confession always has a vertical implication with God, but then often a horizontal one with others as well. But here's what's so great about this passage. Did you hear what John says, what happens when we confess? He said that God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us, but he doesn't stop there. He also purifies us from all unrighteousness. Listen, do you know what happens when something is purified from all unrighteousness? Do you know what you're left with? It's integrity and it's holiness. When 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, it means that in confessing Christ and in confessing our sin, we accept the perfect, holy, righteous integrity of Christ on our behalf. And when we confess, God is faithful and he is just and he forgives us and he purifies us from all unrighteousness. That's what the blood of Christ does for you if you are a follower of Jesus. And some here today are in desperate need of that purification. And so I just wanna ask this morning, have you confessed with your mouth Jesus' lordship in your life? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If not, today can be the day that you no longer are marked by sin, but rather by the grace of God and you accept his invitation to follow me and you can do that today. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you more after the service today. Come up front and uh, we'll sit and chat. But maybe you've already made that confession and it's time to get serious about sin in your life. It's time to get serious about pursuing integrity. It's time to take off that old self and to put on the new. What is it that you need to confess this morning? I'm guessing that the spirit has already begun to highlight that in your heart and in your life. And so I wanna invite you to bow your heads with me right now to close your eyes. And I wanna give you some time and some space right now to come face to face with the Father and face to face with whatever it is that you have been either ignoring or flat out pursuing that you know is a part of that old self, that you know is not part of integrity. It's not part of God's plan for your life. And I want you to confess it to him this morning. I want you to spend some time in confession with the Father this morning. What is it? Maybe it's something with your thoughts. Maybe it's something with your words or even with your actions. But what is it this morning? It's time to be done with it today. Confess that to the Lord. And I suspect that in a moment like this, Satan is wanting to have a heyday with your mind and he's wanting to tell you that you're too far gone. You've been too bad. You've done too much. There's no way the Lord's gonna continue loving you. And if that's true of you right now, I want you to know that that also is a lie from the devil because we are told that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You were adopted as a son or a daughter of the king. He loves you. He gave his life for you. And as we come to him, uh, in obedience to his word, we can trust his word that he is faithful and just and will forgive us and will purify us from all unrighteousness. So if the devil is speaking those lies to you now, you just speak the word right back to him. And I want you to consider right now, who is it on this earth that 
that maybe you need to confess to as a result of coming before the Lord this morning and confessing that sin. We've taken care of the vertical, but there's still some work to do on the horizontal. And so maybe it is a spouse or a coworker or a boss or a friend, but I want you to commit to the Lord right now that you'll have that conversation, that you'll take care of that today and that you'll make it right. Commit it to the Lord. Father, this is such a heavy topic when we think about this call to holiness and this call to integrity and Lord, the things that that we've allowed into our lives is such a heavy topic, Lord, that it cost you your one and only son. But Father, you didn't shy away from it. No, you, you sent Jesus and Jesus, you didn't consider equality with God something we grasp, but you made yourself nothing. You took the form of a servant. You humbled yourself. You became obedient to death, even death on a cross because you wanted us to be done with sin, done with the power, done with the penalty, and eventually, Father, done with the presence of sin. And I thank you for the blood of Jesus this morning. I thank you that it does purify us of all unrighteousness, that we find forgiveness at the foot of the cross, Lord. And I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters, Father, who are coming face to face with some things that maybe they've ignored for far too long. Father, I pray for boldness in confronting sin. I pray that if we've been apathetic, you would find us stepping back into the battle today and saying no to the things, Father, that don't lead to integrity, but rather lead to destruction, the very things that Christ came and gave his life for. Father, we commit as a church this morning to no longer sharing space in our hearts with filth and garbage. Father, but taking sin seriously because you took sin seriously and you have called us to be holy as you are holy. Father, thank you for your spirit's help in this. Thank you for his guidance. Lord, find Genesis Church faithful and obedient to the spirit's voice in our lives. We wanna walk in obedience, Lord. We wanna live lives that bear fruit for you. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.
Surrender.